Medical training is by necessity largely an apprenticeship. No one can learn to be a physician without hands-on experience. But from the patient's perspective, the relative inexperience of a clinician may raise concerns that, regardless of their validity, need to be addressed by teaching hospitals as they pursue their twin missions of patient care and medical education. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Brendan Riley from the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. Dr. Riley has written a perspective article on teaching hospitals and patient-centered care. Dr. Riley, you begin your article with the story of a patient, Mrs. A., who requested that she not have student doctors involved in her care. When you were a resident, were you aware of patients making requests like this? And if so, how did your attendings handle them? I think it was probably less frequently raised as a question a long time ago when I was a resident. I was a resident a long time ago, almost 40 years ago. You recall the question being raised even then. I suspect it's more prevalent today. How prevalent it is, I'm not sure. I'm not aware of any good studies that address the question. In my own case, I think the traditional way of handling this, including when I was a resident, was that the attending would try to reassure the patient that the attending was, quote, in charge and was overseeing all aspects of the patient's care, that the residents and students were there to help the attending. And in many cases, I think the patient's trust in that response really came down to how well the patient knew the attending and whether the patient therefore could trust what the attending was saying. And a lot of the variables in what I just said have changed a lot in the intervening 40 years. In fact, in your article, you place Mrs. A's request in the context of some of those recent trends, one of which is the imposition of duty hour restrictions for residents, which was inspired by well-publicized patient safety concerns. So do you have a sense that the public is now more aware of their clinicians' levels of medical training and that that awareness is changing their expectations? I think many patients, especially in large teaching hospitals, are more aware of this. I'm not sure that they have any good understanding about the impact on that subject of the changes in residents' work hours requirements. But I think a combination of factors, including... So much more information being available online that patients access need for hospital. Well, I don't know if it's a need, but the approach of many hospitals to market themselves as being experts in this area or that area in order to attract patients and increase their so-called market share. I think a lot of that has made patients, especially sophisticated patients, more aware of the pros and cons of being in a teaching hospital And I think, therefore, many of them do ask quite explicitly, especially when we're talking about elective surgical procedures or medical procedures. I think more patients today do ask the surgeon or proceduralist, so, okay, who is actually doing this procedure? Is it you or is it that resident who just interviewed me before you came in the room? So I think it is an increasing issue. I'm just not sure that many hospitals or medical centers are paying as much attention to it as they should. Another intersecting trend that you mention in your article is the patient-centered care movement, the move toward less paternalism, greater patient engagement, more shared decision-making, the use of patient experience measures. How has that movement affected your interactions with patients? I'm a strong proponent of so-called shared medical decision-making. I think the old-fashioned way of 
what was essentially an entirely paternalistic approach to medical care is clearly outdated. The shift to patient-centered care, though, is tricky, I think, because much of what is propelling that movement now is not medical educators, ethicists, philosophers, and patients who are trying to advocate for the importance of true sharing in medical decision-making. I think much of this is being driven today by the need for medical centers, hospitals, doctors, etc., to improve their so-called patient satisfaction scores. And I think in part because of how we measure patient satisfaction, many institutions and physicians are paying more attention to what they call the patient experience. I'm just not convinced that those measures or actually the motivations behind measuring those things or anything like what I at least had once hoped would be what shared decision-making and increasing patient involvement is all about. These are two quite different ways of looking at the problem. One is from a sort of business perspective, and the other is from a more personal, ethical, sort of professional perspective. Looking at that professional perspective, has the goal of patient-centeredness changed medical education in your view? Do today's trainees learn to approach patient care very differently from previous generations? Well, yes and no. For example, one of the fascinating things that's happened in the last, oh, probably 10 or 15 years is that many medical schools now use standardized patients to try to train medical students, and this is largely before they gain much clinical experience, and it's certainly before they go on to postgraduate medical education. And in some ways, although there's lots of good things about those activities, it also promotes certain behaviors on the part of physicians in training that are supposed to make it look as if they care more about how patients feel, but some of that is more style than substance. So, for example, medical students are very frequently told now to do what the old-fashioned psychiatrists used to do, which is when patients are telling them their story, they interrupt them frequently and say, so how did that make you feel? And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's just, I think, in some ways, again, this is maybe more styled in substance. And so I think my answer to your question is, I think some people are trying to get medical students and residents and fellows to pay more attention to these things. My personal opinion is that it's not having much effect. You go on in your article to say that although the hospital where you were working had a non-teaching service, so Mrs. A could be transferred, the teaching service at that hospital probably provided better care. Can you discuss that? What made you think that? I don't think I said that exactly. I think I said that I believe that when I'm the attending on a teaching service, I can provide better care to patients than if I'm an attending not on a teaching service. In my mind, that's quite different from generalizing and saying the teaching services are better than non-teaching services. I think it's almost impossible to generalize about that. I think, in fact, some teaching services in some hospitals are not better than non-teaching services. And so when you try to figure out, well, why is that? Much of it comes down to the individual characteristics and behaviors of the attending physicians and how they interact with the house staff and the medical students. And that is incredibly variable, I think, not just among teaching hospitals, but within teaching hospitals. And I think that is something that we should learn a lot more about, both because it would be better for patients to have some 
better sense of what the sort of predominant culture is in a teaching hospital and whether it is or isn't completely haphazard or whether it's more uniform. But I think it's also important for the development of professionalism of medical students and house staff to have a better sense for what exactly is it that we're supposed to be learning here. And it isn't just about doing the sort of clinical behaviors that patients need. It's also about becoming a doctor. How does that actually happen? This is the so-called informal curriculum that people talk about, and we know very little about what that informal curriculum is like in different teaching hospitals and within teaching hospitals, how it varies. You sound rather pessimistic about the possibility of such a study. So is it, in fact, possible to compare teaching services with non-teaching services more generically? It depends on what you measure. And I think it would be very challenging to do well-controlled studies either within a hospital or among hospitals. But when you think about it, this is what some people think they're already doing when they do so-called case-mix-adjusted outcome studies within hospitals and among hospitals. And when you ask, well, how do teaching hospitals deal with this now when they have both a teaching service and a non-teaching service, how do they decide which patients go where? And again, the answer to that question varies with the different services, but would it be possible to sort of randomize in some sort of case mix adjustable way patients to teaching and non-teaching services? It's possible. It wouldn't be easy, but it could be done. But then there's more to it than that. Then you also have to control for the teachers themselves and how variable they are. And you have to then identify outcome measures that everybody would agree are significant. The problem today is often when comparisons are made within or among hospitals. The kinds of things we measure, they're meaningful to some extent, 30-day readmission rates and that sort of thing, but they're not necessarily the kinds of outcomes that get to what we're talking about, which is the development of medical professionalism, the ability to improve physician-patient relationships, and ultimately how to make shared medical decision-making a really meaningful phenomenon rather than just something we sort of pretend about and go about the, quote, business of medicine. So finally, beyond those comparisons, teaching, non-teaching, what do you think we need to learn about clinical teaching and clinical learning that will benefit both physicians and patients? Oh, I think the first step is to find out what's actually happening out there. So for example, at Cornell, where I spent the last five or six years, we've actually begun going on teaching rounds with house staff teams. So these would include residents, interns, medical students, and the attending, and using sophisticated observers. And at Cornell, for example, we used a PhD person who knows a lot about education and whose assessments would be validated by an experienced clinician, me or somebody else. We just tried to find out what is actually happening in these teaching interactions. Who does what? To whom are the attendings teaching? What is the role of the different learners? Is the patient involved in this at all? So as a simple example of that, how often does any of this actually occur in the patient's presence at the bedside? And the answer, as you probably know in most teaching hospitals today, is hardly ever. Most, quotes teaching and interactions of the, quotes medical team doesn't happen in the presence of the patient. Well, that has some pretty profound implications for how teaching is done and whether it is even possible to then 
foster the kind of shared decision-making we're talking about. So there are these very, very basic questions that you'd think we'd know a lot about that we know next to nothing about. So I think the first step is just find out what's going on out there and try to figure out how variable are these various parameters within a given medical center, and how do we feel about that? Are there things that we observe that make us say, hmm, you know, maybe we ought to think about doing this a little bit differently, and maybe even doing some experimentation within medical services to try to find out which ways work better. Thank you, Dr. Riley.